Take a seat. So as I shared before, there's two halves to the story, and some of you need the first half, and you can choose if that's you, and some of you need the second half, and again, you can choose if that's you. But to understand the story, we have to understand the central element of the story, which is leprosy. Quick survey, anyone here ever had leprosy? You could, if you had, put your hand up because we're the church and you wouldn't be ostracized like what happened back then. But if you actually, if you do find out you've got leprosy, they can intervene early and you can be fine. But back then was a death sentence. If you had leprosy, you were in deep, deep trouble. Leprosy is where your pain receptors, and I'm hoping the doctors in the room will give me a little bit of grace around this. Um, the, the leprosy is where the pain receptors in your skin start to die and fade so you can't feel pain. Show of hands, who would love to never feel pain again? But the problem is, like, just, just do this for a sec. That's your pain receptors working. You can feel that. You can touch. Imagine not being able to feel touch of any degree. And this is what leprosy does. So if there was a hot pot, you would touch it and not know it's hot. Wonderful. Until several seconds later, when you have these blisters on your hands that you can't feel. And if you can't feel it, you can't know it's there. And gradually, infection builds in. You're, you blink. The reason you blink is because your eye, the pain receptors in your eyes go, we need some refreshing. And so you just blink. But without those pain receptors, you don't blink. So what happens? Your eyes dry out and you go blind. People often with leprosy who have had it for a long time and third, in, in, develop, in the developing world would find they've got no fingers left and no hands left because when they were sweeping or they were doing work and they might get a splinter, they don't feel it. And then infection comes in and obviously that part of the body either gradually falls off or needs to be taken off. Leprosy is a horrific condition, which is a bacterial infection that causes the body to destroy itself. So lepers, they weren't generally, someone who had had leprosy for quite some time wasn't very pretty. They were quite visibly different and in some ways deformed because their bodies were literally falling apart and they, the infection that would have been on their body would have been quite visible. And people were terrified of having the same fate come to them. They're absolutely terrified. And so they were ostracized from the community. People with leprosy were, were required to move away from where everybody else was. This was brought about by the priests. The priests were kind of the bosses of this thing, although it was a culturally understood community value. So everybody knew that's what, what, what had to happen. If you had leprosy, you had to walk around with a sign that said, unclean. Imagine that. That's horrific. When you were going near a township of people, you had to have a bell that you would ring to say, toxic hazard coming in. Don't worry about me being a person. I'm now known as my sickness. It was an enormously emotional, excruciating death before it was physical. So the lepers, they would find each other and they would come together in communities and they would look after one another because they were all in the same situation 
together. They could no longer see their husbands or their wives, their children, their family, their neighbors, none of it. They were completely segregated. And so one day, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and the scripture says Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Now let me show you a map so we can kind of get a a gist of what was actually happening. On this map, you will see that Galilee is here, and that's where Jesus spent tons of time teaching and healing and connecting with people and helping people out. So when you read Galilee, it's here. Capernaum's here. Lake of Galilee is here. Jesus spent a lot of time there. Jerusalem is right down here. And in between Galilee and Jerusalem is this place called, let's say it together, Samaria. Samaria. And who comes from Samaria? Samaritans. If you've read the Bible a little bit, you will have heard of the Good Samaritan. That's what this is talking about. And today we're going to bump into another Samaritan. Now, people that were Jews who lived up here needed to get down to Jerusalem every so often. And there was a few ways you could do it. The most popular was to go on, like I'm going to overlay the maps. So the most popular was to move from here, anywhere in here, and take a big wide detour around Samaria and come down here and then pop in to Jerusalem. That took seven days hike to do that. Now the reason people did that is because things were quite heated between Samaria and the entire Jewish nation. They were quite violent, it was very colourful, not in the like, wow, that's colourful, but in the, ooh, that is colourful. So they did not like each other. Nobody in their right mind would go straight down the middle unless they had nothing to fear or they had a death wish. Now, Jesus has a choice to make. He has a choice to make. Does he go around the safe way? to Jerusalem, because he's going to Jerusalem. And when you read that Jesus is going to Jerusalem, that means that Jesus is going to die. He's on his way to the cross. So when you read about Jesus going to Jerusalem, it means that's, it's a clue that he's heading towards the crucifixion. So does he go this safe way around? If you know Jesus, you know which direction he's going. The game's mad. We should be mad. We should have nothing to fear. Jesus had nothing to fear. So we went straight down the middle. And that caused him to go across this border. And going across this border is the border between between Galilee and Samaria. And there something amazing happened. Because he stepped out into this place of no fear. Jesus lived in a place of no fear. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at his distance, as they were required to do, and they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And watch what happens. This is insane. When he saw them, he said, this is it, the totality of what he said. He said, go show yourselves to the priests. That's it. There's no like, and be healed and do this. It's like, just go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went... They were healed. Is that not incredible? Like, just think about that for a minute. There's, there's no right words. There's no formula. Jesus sees their faith and he says, just go to, to Jerusalem. Show yourself to the priest. You'll be right. You, you are healed. There's so much love in Jesus that it kind of just, it always just bled out of him. And it touched people and it met people and it transformed them. 
He had no other choice but to love because he was love. He was so full of love. Sees these ten, ten lepers. He goes, I've got this. Just go to the temple. You're all good. You're all healed. Done. Why does he send them to the temple? It's weird, right? Why doesn't he say, go back to your family and your friends and head over? He doesn't say that at all. He sends them to the temple. Why? Because the temple was the social governing body that had the power to class a person as dirty or clean. You had to go to the temple to find out and be classed as clean so that everybody else would trust that you were clean. Quite humiliating, really. So Jesus was not only healing them from this horrific deal of of leprosy, he was enabling them to re-enter society. That was his instruction, go re-enter society, re-enter your life and your family and your friends and your trade and all of that. He was giving them salvation. He says, you're free from this now. You're saved from this. Go, go. Incredible. See, at the temple, when they rolled up to the temple, they would go to the priests and the priests would give them a thorough examination would deem them clean and then have a ceremony to make sure everybody realized that they were clean and sort of re-entry back into society. The temple, this is what a model of what it would have looked like in Jerusalem, was a visible symbol of God's hope in the world. That's why when you read the scriptures, you're like, that place was grand. It was grand to say the hope of God is grand, it is valuable, it is spectacular which was represented in the temple. In the temple, it's where you go to worship God with your offering. So you would go to the temple to give. You would go to the temple to have your sacrifices received and receive forgiveness or cleansing or healing or a blessing. You prayed and you worshipped God in the temple. You learnt from holy men about how to obey God in the temple. And you communed with other believers. Does the temple sound anything like we're familiar with? You went to the temple to ultimately be prepared for the combative nature of this world. That's why they went to the temple, because the world was full of combat, whether it be spiritual or physical or moral or ethical, and they went to the temple to be with God, so they were ready for everything else. Now, it wouldn't be long from the story that we're talking about today till Jesus took the temple and gave it, first of all, a software upgrade and then a hardware upgrade and called it the church. Good. Glad you're still with me. So Jesus will call it the church, the place where disciples are being prepared for a combative world. That's what the church is. Jesus' vision for the church is that it would be a place where he prepares us for the combat that happens spiritually outside of this place. So we can navigate the world outside of this place because we are part of this place. As a young adult, we, we, uh, one of my most significant times of being prepared for the combative world was meeting with other young adults and we, we decided there wasn't a small group or anything like that, but we just had this hunger to, to 
getting to God. And so we would meet, and sometimes we meet two or three times a week, and we just pray for each other. We pray for the church and pray for any other needs and pray for our friends that didn't know God like we were coming to know God. We'd read the scriptures and we'd sometimes say, Take, like, let's read through this book and then come back next week and discuss like, what it means and what God's been saying to you. It was just the richest time of formation in my entire Christian life because it was about being prepared for the combative nature of this world. And it grounded me in my faith. It grounded me in my faith. One of the essential next moves that we have to make as a church is to create spaces for intimate groups to pray for one another, to pray for the church, to read scripture, to teach each other. A place where we can be more prepared for the combative world. And whether we call them Bible studies or small groups, or life groups, or discipleship groups, or triads, or small, small tables. That is not the point. It does not matter what we eventually call them. What matters is that we're engaged in this space because we know that if we are not, how can our faith be the vibrant light it needs to be to this world, to this combative world? Jesus' vision for humanity is the church. It's sobering, right? Think about that. I do all the times. Like, oh, wow. Jesus' hope for humanity is the church. It's not an added extra of faith. It's not something you meet Jesus and then you go, oh, do I go to church? The church is the body of Christ. It's Jesus' body. We can't belong to Jesus without belonging to his body. It theologically doesn't Work. We are ripping ourselves off if we are not pushing in to be more and more a part of the life of a church, this church, for example. And I know some of you today are hungry for that. But you're also hurting or scared or struggling or lonely or new. It's all fine. And Jesus wants to carry you today into a deeper experience of his life, of his body, of the church, the Christian community. Jesus wants to renew your personal vision for the church, for this church. Just think about that just for a second. Not review the vision of the church, but review, re renew your vision about how you fit and belong. And Jesus wants you to belong, but sometimes... It needs renewal. We need to be renewed by Jesus to have a vision of how we fit renewed. Jesus recategorizes what the temple meant for the nine lepers. It's insane. Instead of it being the hostile obstacle to them never being able to get back into community, it becomes the transformational oasis of hope. They're healed. The first place those Jewish men wanted to get to was the temple, right? That was all of a sudden, it had all been turned around because Jesus transformed the vision, the understanding that they had of it. He didn't change the temple at all. It wasn't until later. But he changed their hearts toward it and they got a, such a fullness of salvation when they pursued it. So Jesus wants to renew your personal vision of this church with his vision of the church. That's for some of you. Not all of you. That's for some of you. But there's another half of the story. We're going to jump in. Picture this. Ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance. 
They called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. They're at a distance when they see Jesus. They cannot move toward Jesus. Jesus does not move toward them. Really interesting. In other situations, Jesus does. But in this one, he keeps those distance. And then they yell, have mercy. And he yells back, go to the temple. You're all good. And he heals them and sends them to the temple. And then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. I remember we talked about the Samaritans. He was a Samaritan. Samaria was far less or far more a harsh society than Jewish society. Lepers were cast out of society. They were never to ever be seen again. They were often put to death. They were despised and feared. But this one Samaritan happened to find on the border of Samaria and Galilee nine other blokes who had, sat, who had leprosy who happened all to be Jewish. So he's, he's healed. He's healed. And Jesus says, go back to the temple. And he's a Samaritan. He goes, <laughs> That's of no benefit to me. Why would I ever go to a Jewish temple? They will not accept me because I'm a Samaritan, let alone the leprosy stuff. So he turns back and he sees Jesus and these things kind of click for him. They fall into place. So he turns toward Jesus and he goes to him and he falls on his feet and he's just so brokenhearted because he realizes what he's been saved from. Everything has been given back to him in a different way than those nine others experienced it. And Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Nine out of ten people won't care about Jesus after they're healed. Could be. Could be a conclusion we draw. I certainly know of a lot of people who have been dramatically healed by Jesus and turned away from their faith. It's our humanity. But Jesus is talking to his disciples when he says this. He's not actually talking to the Samaritan man and he's not talking to the nine lepers that were now healed and walking down the road. He's talking to his disciples when he says this word. He's teaching them. He's using this incredible moment as a, as a way to teach those who are following him. And he's teaching them about God's grace. And he says, look, they can be healed without saying thank you. It's not about that. It's not how thankful they are. It depends on how my grace goes. They are healed and I'm not taking it back. But true wellness, and we talked about wellness last week, true wellness comes when our response is gratitude. Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Wow. You see, it's one thing to be saved, but it's something very different to be well. And gratitude, gratitude leads us to wellness. There were two little boys. One was extremely optimistic about everything. The other was very pessimistic. They were twins and the father said, I just want to do a bit of a test. So he went out and he bought all the best toys he could possibly find. And he went to the pessimistic boy and he gave him all the toys in his room. 
He said, go to your room, incredible toys, you're going to love it. He then also bought a big pile of manure. And he put it in the backyard and he said to the optimistic boy, I've got a treat for you in the backyard. So both the boys tear off to their rooms, very excited. And he waits five or ten minutes and then he goes to the boy who's pessimistic. He goes into his room and the little boy is sitting amongst all these beautiful toys that are unopened and he's weeping. He's just weeping and he can't be consoled. And when the father actually gets to the bottom of it, he says, I can't possibly play with these toys because I would break them. He's like, oh man. So he goes outside to the other optimistic boy who is loving the manure. He's like digging holes in it and having a party in it. And the dad comes out and says, what are you doing? And the little boy says, there's got to be a horse somewhere underneath all this manure. (laughs) The world looks different from an optimistic point of view. And gratitude is the pathway into optimism. There is an integrity in this Samaritan man that resonates in Jesus' vision of gratitude for the world. If you are grateful toward God and toward others, hatred and malice and bitterness and regret and shame and slander and lust and greed and fear, they are squeezed out of you. They are squeezed out of you. Think about it for a second. You're super mad at someone. Someone does something that just ticks you off. You're like, and then something happens that you're really grateful for. And you go, and you can can literally in a step transform, right? If something incredible is over here, I used to come home from work and see my kid. No, I shouldn't use this in past tense. But when they were little babies, like I could come home from a hard day at work and be like, oh, I can easily just forget about all that. When we are grateful, when we switch and go, actually, I'm grateful for this, that which we were enraged about is disempowered. We might not be happy about it, but we don't feel that rage because gratitude, it transforms us. It pulls us away from that. But it's not easy for 90% of us, so Jesus shares. There are the rare ones. We, We all know them. They're all in our lives. They, they truly get it. When you look at them, you go, you're just grateful. And I love being around you because it somehow makes me more grateful for the world. It changes my perspective. They're just people that overflow with gratitude and thanks because they've seen Jesus' true majesty and they see the full gravity of what they've been saved from and the overwhelming response is thanks. See, it was bad for the Jewish lepers, but it was unbearable for the Samaritan leper. They were all saved from the same thing in the same moment, but the Samaritan knew the depths of that which he had ultimately been saved from, which made his salvation so much sweeter. And according to Jesus' experiment, his experience, there's about 10% of us that naturally get it. We just live in that space. And there's 90% of the rest of us that go, I wish I was a bit more grateful. Yep, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. It's not always, it's not always that easy. What if it were a hundred percent of us? Just think about that for a second. What if it were a hundred percent of us? The world and everyone we meet would take note. What? Just like Jesus took note of that one Samaritan. He's like, this, this is different. There was a a little orphan boy in the streets of Calcutta that was rescued by Mother Teresa's nuns. 
and he was in really bad shape, really, really bad shape. And they took him into the orphanage and they nursed him back to health and they fed him and they cared for him, tended to his wounds and really looked after him. And he came back to full health. And as a parting gift, they'd managed to connect him with a family in the city. So as a parting gift on his last day, they gave him a satchel of sugar. Now, a satchel of sugar in the time of this story, a quarter of a satchel of sugar was worth a day's wage. So they gave him this priceless gift to set him up for his new future. And as he's walking out of the gates, he notices the nuns bringing in another orphan boy that was in remarkably a similar situation to he was. And he broke ranks from his new family and he rushed to the boy and he gave him the sugar. And he said, I have received so much love here. I hope you do too. That's gratitude, right? Grateful people do great things. I'm not talking about big things. I'm talking about great things. And here's the good news. It's easy to flip the switch on gratitude. It really is. We need to create more moments of gratitude in our day. And make it, make it part of your quiet time or your chair time every day. I'm just going to list a couple of things I'm grateful for today. But set an alarm. When the alarm goes off, it annoys you. And then you go, I've got to be grateful. And you list a couple of things that right there in front of you that you're grateful for. Do it before every meal. Family meal, sit down with the kids, what are you grateful for? Make it your first thought when you wake up. Oh, I'm awake, what am I grateful for today? Do it in your small group, your Bible study, your whatever we're going to call them, when you join them. Make it part of the rhythm of that. Keep a list and add to it every day, whatever mechanism works. But there's ways that we can remind ourselves to be more grateful. And the more we remind ourselves, the more grateful we will become. And the more grateful we become, the more grateful we will stay. God, I am so grateful for... It doesn't even need to be something that everybody else will go, wow. I'm grateful for the air that I breathe. I'm grateful for our sunshine. I'm grateful for the fact that I can put one foot in step in front of the other. Schedule moments of gratitude into your day. And you'll see a transformation take, pass, take part. Communion is actually the epitome of thankfulness. It's where we remember what Jesus did and we are thankful for it. In fact, if you could think of a better ritual to grab hold of the power of gratitude, you'd be hard-pressed to go past communion that we're going to share in now. And so as we prepare to come to this table and to be thankful to God, what I would like us to do is just spend a few moments in prayerful reflection. And there's three, I want to speak to three groups of you. Maybe some of you have not been impacted by what Jesus has done to the degree that you want to be impacted by it. And if that's you, I would encourage you just in this next few moments to invite God to show you what you have been saved from, to welcome your life into Jesus' life. And some of you need to experience Jesus' vision for you and the church. And only Jesus can give that. Nobody else here can. Only Jesus can give you a vision for you in this church. And then there's those of you who are like, I just need to cultivate gratitude. And so just spend this time telling God what you're grateful for. And that will usher us into a time of communion with one another. So let's just spend a few moments in this prayerful space.